Hello, my name is Andrew Gamison, and each week it is my privilege to be the host of the Speaking for Him podcast. I'm so thankful that you've joined me today for some encouragement on this journey that we call the Christian life. And if you are blessed by what you hear today, please share this with your family and friends, and please leave a review on whatever podcast platform you are listening on. That will help other people find me, and it will also encourage me as I continue in this ministry. Well, I'm really excited about what I have to share with you today. I know I say that a lot, um, but I think what we're going to unpack today is so very important. And what we're going to deal with is an intro to a series that I'm going to be doing on 12 aspects that are unique to Christianity. And this is actually from a Facebook post that I found in March by Tim Keller. So that's the basis for this series. And I hope that it is a blessing to you. I think that as we've gone on through, especially the last five years or so, there's been an increasing number of people that have claimed the name of Christ in the name of Christian relativism or Christian humanism. And so I think it's important for us to know what is distinct about Christianity. It's interesting to me that people often talk about coexisting when the very essence of Christianity is exclusivity. Not in the sense that everyone's not welcome because they are, but in the sense that Jesus himself said there's only one way to the Father, and that is through him. We're going to dig into that later, but first of all, I want to talk about what is going on. Well, Tim Scott, a Republican who represents South Carolina in the U.S. Senate, had an op-ed this week in response to some comments that Janet Yellen, uh, Joe Biden's Treasury Secretary, made in regards to abortion being good for the economy. I don't know how anyone could believe this, but apparently that is a belief of Janet Yellen and many other on the liberal left. And Tim Scott took issue with it. Here's a little bit of what he said. So to be honest with you, I could not believe my ears. She was responding to a question, so it was completely unprepared, unfiltered. And her response was to, in my opinion, provide a callous approach and a solution, a remedy for blacks living in poverty being abortion. And as a guy who was raised by a powerful, positive black woman in poverty, in a single parent household, I know that sometimes broken places is where you find brilliance. I know that sometimes hard work and dedication and perseverance pays off handsomely. You and I both know that the truth of the story is the American journey continues to evolve in the right direction. And frankly, even Secretary Yellen's words should have been thought through much better. Unfortunately, it seems like whenever someone needs a poster child of brokenness, mm-hmm. they go to African-Americans, and that's not our story. Our story is a story of victory. Our story is a story of overcoming odds. Our story is, frankly, triumphing after tragic circumstances. That's the story of who we are. And it's a story that should be told and should be told as a part of the American story that we as Americans, we are the solution. We shouldn't have fewer Americans. We should have more Americans. You want to increase our labor force participation? Participation rate? Choose life. 
All right, I want to get to this. You wrote in your op-ed about the Treasury Secretary. Here's a quote. We live in a world where words are too often disconnected from the lived or lived experiences of many Americans. Yellen's cold and robotic reference to the issue of life is just the latest example of that. What did you mean by that? Well, a couple of things. First, when you hear her words and you see my lived experience, you see your lived experience, so many Americans, millions of us, started in poverty. Frankly, they say 97 percent of those who are rich today were either middle class or in poverty two generations ago. My grandfather was picking cotton. He lived long enough to watch his grandson pick a seat in Congress. That tells me that the story continues. The journey becomes more and more beautiful, more and more amazing. But when you think about the fact that the words that people speak are disconnected from the reality, you, you hear that inflation is good for people living in poverty. Nothing is further from the truth. You know that baby formula is hard to find, but you knew that several months ago and you did nothing with it. It's almost as if the administration wants us to believe what they are saying as opposed to what we are seeing. I want to get to more of your words. Yes. I don't know in the time that I have covered you as a journalist that I've ever known you to write so passionately. Uh, I want to get to this. You also wrote in your new op-ed in the Washington Post, if abortion is our first and best answer to ensure that women and low-income families can thrive economically, the United States has reached one of its darkest times in our history. Senator. There's no doubt that when you think about those words that she spoke in the truth of our existence, we should be leaning into the solution that is our nation and is a story of American evolution. I certainly believe that hard times produces our best results. That frankly, it's well, that's for everybody. Did you get that? Yes. That's so true, because there are a lot of people going through hard times right now. That's, that's just There's it. parents with the, the deficit of baby, short, baby formula shortage. We always have hard times. That's just the truth of our existence. It's always tragedy, then triumph. It's always obstacles, then opportunities. It's always problems, then promise. And one of the things that makes me excited about who I am and where we are as a country is that the hardest times I've lived through made me a better person and made me more compassionate towards others. So I hate to hear that those hard times should be eliminated by eliminating my life. That's a stretch and one that I just have to speak out against. There's a lot to unpack here, but I just want to talk about a couple things. First of all, uh, this idea that murder would be good for the economy is just plain wrong. Uh, the reality is that we actually have a people shortage. If you look around, you will find jobs everywhere and not enough people to fill them. And I always think about the fact that, hey, if we had 60 million more people on this earth over the last 40-plus years, then maybe there would be more people to work. The second thing that I would mention is what Tim said about the narrative surrounding black people, that their narrative is one of victimhood, that their narrative is one of, of not being able to succeed. And his, he's saying my narrative, the narrative of our people is actually one of victory. We used to be slaves. We are slaves no longer. And he said, my uh, great-grandfather, so a couple generations removed from me, was a slave 
and we've had sharecropping in my family, uh, but now I have a seat in Congress. So I have overcome the obstacles of my race, so to speak. But yet the narrative is that these are still victims and that abortion is the only way to help them. I also really appreciated the fact that he talked about how overcoming obstacles makes people better people. One of my favorite TV shows is Undercover Boss. And one of the reasons that I like Undercover Boss is because the people that are featured on that show, the majority of them get recognized for a job well done. And often they work hard because they are motivated to take care of their family and do whatever it takes to provide for their needs. At the end of the show, when they are rewarded with often big raises or extra money for the needs of their family, they are often exuberant that they can provide a better life for their family than they themselves had. And in a sense, that's a great thing. Every person should want their children to, in a sense, be better off than they were. But there's another part of that that can be slightly dangerous, and that is this idea of that hard work makes us who we are. The people on this show are successful and are inspiring employees for the sheer fact that they have to work hard. And so if you have this mentality that you don't want your children to work as hard as you have, you could actually be taking away a part of what makes their character good. And so I really hope that people will pay attention to this op-ed. Now, of course, Tim's getting a lot of flack. I looked at the story on the New York Post, and there's a lot of people saying that he doesn't have a right to this opinion because he is a man, uh, that he has no idea whether his mom might have had an abortion. She wouldn't tell him if she did. And so even in his uh, extolling the virtues of his mother, he is being flamed for this opinion. But, folks, as I've said many times before, abortion is murder, and no argument that you make is going to change that. And you may not like what I'm about to say, but I'm going to say it anyway. A country that desires to kill its most vulnerable citizens, its unborn, does not ultimately care about a formula shortage. In this clip, you heard Tim Scott say that we've known about a formula shortage since January, and now we are making an issue of it because it fits the continuing narrative of giving us crisis after crisis and forcing us to come up with a response to it. This is where we live. We need to choose life in all circumstances. Does that mean that everybody that has a baby is ready to have a baby or that they have the proper response to it? No. But that baby's life should not be dependent on those circumstances. You can always come up with a reason not to do the right thing. I want to share with you now a clip from the Michael Knowles show. 
that I listened to this week, and he was talking about the mass shooting in Boston, which involved a white supremacist, and he was saying that even though he doesn't want to bring a lot of attention to this guy, he didn't mention his name, he thinks it's important for us to realize his motivations. Because there are going to be people who say uh, that he was following the example of racist right-wing extremists, that he was a conservative trying to make a point. And so Michael Knowles took the time to read his direct response to the question of whether he was a Christian. I read the purported uh, manifesto of this killer. I don't see any reason to read his thesis on why he committed this crime. I don't see any reason to say the guy's name. I don't see any reason to give him the airtime and fame that he is obviously seeking. Uh, but I, I, I will go in just to clarify things in terms of who he is and and what some of his motivations were, not what he was necessarily hoping to achieve, uh, or his you know grand political thesis, but just what might have motivated him. Because you're going to hear a lot of misinformation, certainly from the left, but you know maybe some from the right too. So he says, "Are you a Christian?" No, I do not ask God for salvation by faith, nor do I confess my sins to him. I personally believe there is no afterlife. So if anyone tells you this is about Christianity or a Christian nationalism or Christian whatever, uh, that's not true. He, sa- he says it's not true and he seems sincere. Are you a fascist? Yes. He says he's a fascist. Are you a white supremacist? Yes. Are you an anti-Semite? Yes. I wish all Jews to hell, he says. This is more evidence that he is not Christian uh, because if you're a Christian, what you want is for Jews to... Uh, accept Jesus and go to heaven and be in heaven forever with everybody, not just Jews, but everybody on earth. You you are praying for everyone's salvation. This guy's obviously not doing that. He's wishing someone to go to hell. So that that part of the clip actually focused on asking, are you a Christian? Is this motivated by your Christian beliefs? And he says, I am not a Christian. I have never asked forgiveness. I don't believe in an afterlife. It's kind of interesting that he said he didn't believe in an afterlife, but then he wished that Jews would go to hell. Um, but I just want to make the point that a true Christian believes that the Jews are God's chosen people and wants them, along with everyone else, to go to heaven. The Bible says that God is not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. And so for myself as a believer, I want, as many Jews and as many people of any other race uh, to go to heaven. The Bible says in Revelation that there will be people of all tribes and all tongues in heaven with us at the end of time. And I'm excited to see the diversity of the creation of God through his people um, when the end of time comes. So, I just want to put that out there that if you see any narrative that says that the guy was a conservative or this guy was a Christian and that he was motivated by the quote-unquote racist conservatives that we have today, it's just not true. It's kind of reminiscent of the kidnapping plot against Gretchen Whitmer when people, and even she, I think, implied that it was people that love Trump, that wanted to see Trump succeed, that were behind her kidnapping, and 
the the guy that was the head of it basically had a video saying that he hated Trump. But yet that nar- narrative was perpetuated. So we need to be careful to know the facts. And when we have his own words to tell us the facts, then we need to make sure that we are aware of them. Today we begin our series on 12 unique aspects of Christianity, and I'm excited to dig into each one of these. Our quote of the day comes from Jesus in the book of John, John 14, uh, verse 6. Jesus saith unto him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. And again, that's John 14, verse 6. And one of the things I have noticed, particularly over the last several years, is that when you look at what Jesus says, he always speaks in the definitive article. He doesn't say here, I am a way, I am a truth, I am a life. No, he says, I am the, the one and only. He says, no man cometh unto the Father but by me. So there really is no wiggle room here. So for all those people that say that you can be a Christian and quote-unquote coexist with other religions, they're wrong. Now, does that mean that we should be stirring up trouble with other religions? No. The Bible tells us to live at peace with all men as much as is in our power to do so. We should be a people of peace. We should be a people of love. We should be a people that cares for the needs of others. I think that's one thing that a lot of times... Uh, people don't understand that are in the world is that the majority of charitable organizations got their start from a Christian worldview. That's why you have hospitals with names like St. Mary's and things of that nature because they came from a Christian perspective of the need to care for those who cannot care for themselves. So, we're going to look at six things that Christianity teaches us that are unique to Christianity that you can't find through secularism or any other religious pattern that is available in this life. I'm of the belief that pretty much all religious uh, practices have their roots in the Bible because God made us, and we are made to worship God, and so it is natural for a man to pursue God because he has a void that can only be filled by God. The problem that comes is that men decide to make a God of their own fashion and try to fill the void that way. But let's look together at the scriptures and find out what is unique about Christianity and what 
truths can we stand firmly on as we go through this life and as we share the hope of Jesus with others. The first unique aspect of Christianity that I want to share with you is that our joy as Christians is based on Jesus, not circumstances. The Apostle Paul said it this way when he said, Rejoice in the Lord always, and again, I say rejoice. Now this seems like an innocuous thing, and you might say, well, that's easy to say, but hard to do. But when you look at the context and you realize that Paul is writing to the Philippians from a Roman jail, it gives you a whole new insight into this passage. The Roman jail is not like the jails are today um, that I have ministered in, where they have heated two-person cells and three squares a day. No, this was most likely a dungeon or a cave where he was chained between two guards most of the time. And yet he is writing, Rejoice in the Lord always, and again I say, Rejoice. One of the reasons that we as Christians can rejoice is because Romans 8.28 says, And we know that all things work together for good, to them that love God, to them who are called according to his purpose. Now, it's very important for us to realize that that doesn't mean that everything is good or that everything will be good, only that all things work together for good. And that means that the things that we go through are part of God's ultimate plan. And we may not know the reason for them in this life. Job didn't know why he was put through the trials he was, and I don't think he ever found out. And yet God was working his will and providing us with a testimony of how to rely on him in hard times. Another reason why our joy can be consistent is because Jesus Christ, the foundation of our faith, never changes. No matter what may change in our jobs or our families, Jesus is the same forever. Hebrews 13.8 says it this way, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever. And I think that as we go into this modern brand of Christianity where we can make Christianity say what we want it to say, one of the problems that we deal with is the fact that we are in essence, when we do that, saying that Jesus does change. Because the principles of the scriptures and the words of the scriptures are just as true now as they were then, and they never change. I think it's important to to say here as well that joy is different than happiness. Joy allows you to have an optimistic look at the future even when you're going through hard times. It does not mean that you will always have a smile on your face. It does not mean that you will always be happy. But it does mean that you will always have the confidence to know that God is with you. And I think that's such an important distinction between happiness and joy. The goal of our life is holiness, not happiness. Now, if we strive for holiness, happiness can be a result. But I think if we make happiness the goal, we will be sadly 
disappointed. The next aspect of Christianity uh, that I want to bring up is that Christianity is based on the merit of Jesus rather than my merit. I think for a lot of us, it can be tempting to say, I'm a pretty good person. I, I do most things right, and sometimes I slip up, but overall I'm pretty good. The Bible paints a different picture for us and actually says that the only way that we are worthy of anything good and the only way we are worthy to enter heaven is because Jesus Christ gave us his merit. Here's what Paul said. He said, Though I might also have confidence in the flesh, if any other man thinketh that he hath whereof, he might trust in the flesh I more. Circumcised the eighth day of the stock of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, and Hebrew of the Hebrews, as touching the law of Pharisee. Concerning zeal, persecuting the church, touching the righteousness which is the law, blameless. But what things were gained for me, those I counted lost for Christ. Yea, doubtless, and I count all things but loss for the excellency of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and do count them but dung, that I may win Christ, and be found in him, not having mine own righteousness, which is of the law, but that which is through the faith of Christ, the righteousness which is of God by faith. And this is Philippians 3, 4-9. to And in this passage, what we see is Paul saying, if anybody had an ability on an earthly level to claim a certain level of righteousness, it was me. But when I look at myself through the lens of Christ, I realize that I need to give it all up and claim Christ because my righteousness is not enough. And he continues this in 2 Corinthians 5.21 when he says, For he hath made him to be sin for us who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. There is no way for us to attain our own righteousness. We can only stand on the merit of Jesus Christ and accept his forgiveness. Jesus said, whoever the Son sets free will be free indeed. Christianity also gives us a balanced view of humanity. We are made in the image of God. That's the first point I want to make here. And God said, Let us make man in our image, after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the fowl of the air, and over the cattle, and over the earth, and over every creeping thing that creepeth upon the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God he created him. Male and female created he them. Genesis one twenty six and 27. Now a lot of you will believe that Humans are just another form of animal that happened to come out on top of the food chain. But when you look at this scripture, you see that God made us very distinctly different. If you go on to Genesis chapter 2, it says that God breathed into man the breath of life and man became a living soul. Created in the image of God, he formed us from the dust of the ground. He didn't just speak us into existence, but he took the time to form us from the dust of the ground. What a wonderful thing that is. And so we can revel in the fact that we were made in the image of God. 
but also have the balanced fortitude to realize that we are also sinners in need of mercy and grace. And it says in Romans three twenty three and 24, For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God, being justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. And so we see here that although we are glorious creations of God, we are fallen uh, human beings who are stuck in our sin and we need the mercy of God that is given through his redemption on the cross. So we have a balanced view of humanity. On one hand, we are the glorious creation of God. On another hand, we are trapped in sin and we need God to help us get out. We have no strength of our own in which to do that. The next aspect is Christian Christianity offers a freedom that strengthens personal relationships. And I think this is so important in this uh, society in which we live. We basically have a view of freedom that says, I have the freedom to do whatever I want and there's nothing you can do to stop me. I don't care what you think. I'm going to exercise my freedom and I'm going to tell you not to exercise your freedom if it offends me. So on both sides of this, we kind of have a selfish attitude about freedom. But here's what the Apostle Paul says about the true use of our freedom. For brethren, you have been called to liberty. Only use not liberty for an occasion to the flesh, but by love serve one another. So we have liberty, and we can, uh, within the confines of our Christian faith, to a certain extent, do what we want. But the use of our liberty is not just to achieve our goals, not just to do what we want, but to serve one another out of love. And Paul brings this out when he says, all things are lawful for me, but all things are not expedient. All things are lawful for me, but all things edify not. And that's 1 Corinthians 10.23. So we see in this passage in Galatians this idea that we should use our liberty to serve other people, that that should be our goal, to put other people first. And then we see in 1 Corinthians that Paul is saying, there's a lot of things that I could do that are lawful for me to do, that are completely all right for me to do, that I'm not going to do out of deference for my brothers. And I think that's so important for us to realize as we think about these concepts of liberty that we don't use it in a malicious way, that we say, I'm going to use my liberty to serve one another, to put others ahead of myself. The Bible says, let each esteem other better than themselves. And this is unique to Christianity. I know some people will say that you can do these things without being a Christian, and it's not important to have Christianity as the center of all these things because they're just good things to do. And while you may be right to a certain extent, the reality is that the, these things that we are called to do are not accomplished without the intervention of the Holy Spirit. Christianity gives us hope for the future. 
For surely there is an end, and thine expectation shall not be cut off. Proverbs 23.18 There is a hereafter. And we need to be prepared for it. A lot of people believe in nothingness. You just die and nothing happens. But the reality is that there is an afterlife and we need to be prepared for it. How do we get prepared for it? John says in 1 John, These things I have written unto you that believe on the name of the Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life and that you may believe on the name of the Son of God. And I think it's very interesting that there are certain religions, even some that would call themselves under the Christian umbrella, that do not know that they are going to heaven. Even though it says in 1 John 5.13 that I can know. How can I know? I can know because I believe on the name of the Son of God. A good way to follow this up is by reading what Paul said in 2 Corinthians 5.8. We are confident, I say, and willing, rather to be absent from the body and to be present with the Lord. What a wonderful truth it was to be able to go through my grandmother's uh, graveside service and later her memorial with the knowledge that we were burying her body It was a shell of her former self and that she was alive with Jesus at that very moment uh, because she passed from this earth to heaven. Uh, I was so blessed and comforted by that and I'm looking forward to seeing her again. Now it's important for us to realize that we need to make a decision to follow Christ in order for heaven to be a reality. Remember, our sin separates us from the Lord. And so here's what Daniel 12, 2 warns us. And many of them that sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life and some to shame and everlasting contempt. There's only two ways to end life. Either you will go to heaven and you will experience everlasting life uh, to where the pleasures of this life will pale in comparison or you will go to everlasting contempt and you will go to the lake of fire where the worm dieth not and the fire is not quenched. Those are the two choices. And for those who may not believe that hell is real, I submit to you that Jesus spoke more about hell than he did about heaven. And he did that because he did not want any of us to go there. So please be aware that there is an afterlife and prepare accordingly. Finally today, Christianity gives us true freedom from guilt. Some would say that if we are guilty of a crime, we should do penance and pay for our misdeeds. And that if we do enough good, we can outweigh the bad. But the reality is we have no way of doing that because we um, are sinners by nature and practice. Since the fall of man, when Adam and Eve sinned in the garden, we have had a propensity to sin. The Bible says that we are dead in our trespasses and sins. That's the way the Bible characterizes it. So what can we do? 
The reality is that Christianity is the only way to receive freedom from our guilt. Here's what Ephesians says about that. That at that time you are without Christ, being aliens from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers from the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, ye, who are sometimes far off, are made nigh by the blood of Christ. For he is our peace, who hath made both one, and hath broken down the middle wall of partition between us. So, Jesus died on the cross and brought us near to him in a way that we never would have been able to be before he died. Because the reality is that God hates sin and can't abide it. So he allowed Jesus to take on the sin of the world so that we could be free and experience heaven. And finally we read in the book of First John, My little children, these things I write unto you, that ye sin not. And if any man sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. And he is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. So anyone in the world who claims Christ as Lord and Savior will be in heaven. It's so exciting to know that there will be people from every tribe and every tongue in heaven. So I just want to take a moment to review what we have covered on this episode. Joy is based on Jesus, not circumstances. Christianity is based on the merit of Jesus rather than my own. Christianity gives us a balanced view of humanity. Christianity offers a kind of freedom that strengthens personal relationships. Christianity gives us hope for the future. And Christianity gives us true freedom from guilt. I hope that you have been encouraged by these things and that you will tune in next week as we continue on this journey. And I hope that you will share it with your family and friends. That's about all I have time for this week. So I will simply say, have a great week and keep serving the best of masters. Thank you for listening to today's episode. Your host has been Andrew Gomison, founder of Speaking for Him. For more information on today's show and to leave us comments and voicemails, visit speakingforhim.blogspot.com. You can find Andrew's ministry at speakingforhim.com. That's speaking, the number four, H-I-M. You can also interact with us at facebook.com slash speakingforhim and on Twitter at speakingforhim. And when you look for us on iTunes and Stitcher, let us know what you think of the podcast by leaving a rating and review. 